0: Would you like to kneel with me in prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, we would come figuratively to the foot of your cross together to kneel and to worship you for what you've done for us. The perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all other sacrifices, the one the sacrifice that makes us right before you, holy God. We ask, precious Father, that you would send the indwelling Holy Spirit to minister the word of God to the people of God, that we would be lost in wonder, love, and praise for our salvation and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray together in his name, amen. Amen. I want you to imagine yourself Being a Jew who lived before the cross of Jesus Christ, what would that have been like? Well, I'm going to read you some verses from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, that would tell you exactly what it would have been like for you and me if we were Jewish living before the cross. Leviticus 1, beginning of verse 1, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he must offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be acceptable for him to make an atonement for on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Yes, if you were Jewish and you lived before Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you would have to go through that Procedure. Before the Lord Jesus Christ died on Good Friday, the Jewish priests had the drudgery of daily animal sacrifices, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, lifetime after lifetime. Blood was shed one day, but when the next day day came, more blood was necessary to be shed. The animal sacrifices by the Jewish priests were daily, and they were time after time after time sacrifices. This, of course, was because by God's design, animal blood was only a temporary covering for sin. That is to say, animal blood was always anticipating the Messiah's shed blood. Animal blood was merely a Band-Aid treatment for sin. But the Messiah's blood would be the cure for sin. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14 will be our text for this Good Friday morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14, and every priest stands daily ministering in offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." When we look at verse 11, we see five truths. Are you ready? Here we go. The first truth in Hebrews 10, verse 11. There were many priests. It says every priest. In point of fact, there were thousands of them. Because there were four million Jews that came out of Egypt. There were a lot of priests. Number two. Those priests stood, it says in verse 11, every priest stands. Truth three from verse 11, the sacrifices were steady. It says every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time. The fourth truth still from verse 11, the sacrifices did not vary. It says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. And the fifth truth from verse 11, the sacrifices were ineffective. It says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. By the way, How would you have liked to repeatedly handle lots of animal blood, bad smells, bones, hides, knowing that what you were were doing was not only tedious and laborious, but it was also ineffective? How would you have liked to have that ministry? Friends, I am convinced that the only way that these dear Old Testament Jewish priests pressed on in their duties was their faith in the Lord and their obedience to the Lord. As the hymn puts it, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Now, at first the consideration of all of this in verse 11 would make us to wonder, is this not a waste? Was this not a waste? We would be wrong if we came to that conclusion, because God wastes nothing. Uh, Think about it. Why would God have commanded all of these animal sacrifices to be made? At least four things come to mind. Number one, to teach the necessity of shed blood. Number two, to grant specific ways for believing Jews to demonstrate their faith in the Lord and their obedience to the Lord. Number three, why would God command animal sacrifices? To anticipate the Lamb of God who actually would take away the sin of the world. And fourth, God would prescribe these animal sacrifices to make a sharp contrast. The sharp contrast of Jesus Christ's cross all the more precious for those of us who live today in the magnificent shadow of that cross. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Very quickly, I want to do some contrasting with you. Some contrasting between verse 11 and verse 12 of Hebrews 10. You ready? We're going to do this fast. May I show you, though, at the beginning of verse 12, there's a very important word. It is but. But. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Yes, in your Bible studies, Old and New Testament, one of the most important words we run across is but, B-U-T, because it says a 180-degree turn is taking place. A 180-degree switch is taking place. And you're going to see with me that verse 11 has a 180-degree switch in verse 12. So let's do some contrasting. Verse 11 focuses on the human Jewish priest, but verse 12 focuses on the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Still, more contrast. Verse 12, there is one priest. It says, but he, verse 11, had many priests. It says every priest. Verse 12, Christ's sacrifice is entirely complete. No more sacrifices are needed. It says one sacrifice for sins for all time. But in verse 11, the human priest's sacrifices were repetitive and ineffective for it says daily ministering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, Christ's sacrifice is complete. The wording, one sacrifice for sins for all time. Verse 11, the law's sacrifices were ongoing. The wording stands daily, time after time. More contrast. Verse 12, with Christ's sacrifice, the job of paying for sins is finished. The language is, he sat down. Christ sat down at the Father's right hand because his work of redemption is completed with his cross and empty tomb. So verse 12, Christ's sacrifice, the job of paying for sins is finished. He sat down. Verse 11, with the law's system of animal sacrifices, the job of paying for sins was perpetual. The wording, every priest stands daily. More contrast between these verses. The old covenant, which was temporary. The new covenant, which is permanent. Sinful priests, one sinless priest. A limited by death priesthood. Oh no, now a forever priesthood. More contrasts. Animals sacrificed. The son of God sacrificed. More contrasts. Ongoing sacrifices were necessary. Now sacrifices no longer needful. Contrast, contrast, contrast. The atonement was a one year atonement in the Old Testament, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, annual. The atonement for us in the church age is an eternal propitiation. If you have your Bibles, I'd love to show you Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two to see the eternal, everlasting, Sin payment for your sins being accepted by God. In Colossians 2 verse 13, listen. And when you were dead in your transgressions, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Christ, made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, watch it, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We might miss what was happening here in the Roman Empire when a criminal was convicted of a capital crime and crucified, they would nail the charges against him on the door of his cell before crucifixion, rapist, insurrectionist, traitor, murderer, whatever it was, on a parchment on the door of his cell. And then as he was taken under arrest from the cell to the cross, he would die on that same parchment with his felony capital crime that he had been convicted of was nailed over his head. They had no crime against Jesus. Pilate said, I find no fault with this man. He said it three times. So all they could put over the Lord Jesus' head on his downbeam of his cross, this is Jesus of Nazareth. That's because in the mind of heaven, all of your sins were on that parchment over Jesus' head. All of my sins. We're listed over Jesus' head in this beautiful theological truth in Colossians 2.13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross having nailed our sins, which are many, to the cross of Christ. So Jesus Christ's payment, his sacrifice for sin, was once for all time. No need to reproduce it. No possibility to reproduce it. He sat down. It says in Hebrews 10, he sat down. Oh, these contrasts between Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. Oh, these contrasts. In verse 12, we see God's grace reaching down to sinners in the person and sacrifice of his son. In verse 11, we see sinners prescribed by the law reaching up to God. Good Friday was the culmination of all of the Old Testament laws, animal blood sacrifices for sin. Now please hear this, church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, please hear this. Jesus died. Jesus was raised to life. Jesus was seen alive after crucifixion. Jesus ascended back to the Father's right hand. He sat down at his Father's right hand. Jesus will come again twice. Once at the rapture return and any moment return of Christ, and then seven years later, a second return of the second coming of Christ. And verse 13 says in our text, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus Christ, the crucified, buried, resurrected, glorified, and soon-to-be-returning Savior, presently is waiting in heaven at the Father's right hand for his enemies to be made a footstool. That, of course, will happen when Christ returns and establishes his literal visible, thousand-year kingdom on earth after his second coming. And so please don't miss this, brothers and sisters. After dying on the cross, after rising from the dead, after being seen alive from the dead for 40 days, after ascending back to heaven, our Lord sat down. He had no need to stand. He accomplished all that was purposed in the council of the Trinity. He sat down. Waiting from that time on until the, his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, he has sat down. Of course, John chapter 19, verse 30, tells us that our Lord's very last words before dismissing his spirit in death were, "Tell, telestai, it is finished. Tell telestai is an interesting word in the Greek. It was a commercial word. Some of you may be in business and you have accounts receivable. And when someone pays in full some debt they owe your business, you might stamp right on the invoice, paid in full. Jesus Christ, by using the word that he used from the cross, was saying your sin debt, believer, is paid in full. Paid in full, complete, comprehensive, unimprovable, finished, Te telestai. Now, we need to remember, as we sit as the beneficiaries of this completed, finished payment of our sin debt, we need to remember that getting to this place of finished sin payment is was grueling. We need to ponder and think about the fact that getting to this place of full atonement for sin and acceptable satisfactory payment for sin called propitiation was heinous torture. Dr. Tommy Mitchell, medical doctor out of Vanderbilt University, will help us understand this, and I quote, the suffering began soon after the Last Supper when Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing that the time of his death was near, Jesus prayed intently. According to Luke 22:44. 44, quote, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. End of quote. Medical literature documents that bloody sweat, known as hema. Tidrosis does occur. This condition is seen in rare instances of extreme emotional stress. The resulting blood loss is not severe, but it does cause the skin to be exquisitely tender, making what was to come for Christ even more painful. The doctor continues. After these hours of emotional distress in the trials and in the garden, Jesus was betrayed and arrested. His captors mocked and beat him after he faced the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities. He was ultimately sentenced to crucifixion on a cross. Before sentencing Jesus to death, Pilate attempted to appease the Jews by having him beaten. John 19, verse 1 notes, quote, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, end of quote. However, this brief description does not communicate the brutal nature of what was to follow. Scourging was a particularly vicious form of punishment. The victim was stripped of his clothes, and his hands were raised above his head and tied to a post. Then one or two soldiers would repeatedly beat the victim with a whip, usually made of several leather strips, with jagged pieces of iron or sheep bone tied onto them. One blow after another was delivered across the shoulders, back, and buttocks. Initial blows ripped gashes into his already tender skin, and those that followed dug deeper into our Savior's tissues, tearing muscles and blood vessels. The subsequent blood loss further weakened him. Torn and exposed nerves on the back caused indescribable pain. This brutal scourging was only the beginning of Jesus' suffering. After he was untied from the blood-stained scourging post, the soldiers placed a scarlet robe on him. Each breath, each movement of his body caused the robe to rub against his torn flesh. Then a crown of thorns was placed on his head. As the trained Roman soldiers beat him, these thorns drove deeper into his head, causing profuse bleeding and intense pain. Later the scarlet robe was torn from his back, reopening the deep wounds how horrible was jesus suffering at this point isaiah 52:14 says quote just as many were astonished at you so his visage his face was marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of men end of quote jesus had been so severely beaten he no longer looked like a human being to the cross jesus was then led to calvary In his weakened physical condition, he was apparently unable to carry his crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. Simon, the Cyrenian, bore the crossbeam for him. Nonetheless, each step must have been agonizing as jarring aggravated the pain in the open wounds on Jesus' back. On arrival at the crucifixion site, the soldiers laid Jesus on his back against the crossbeam and his back and shoulders rubbed against the beam. The wood must have dug into the open wounds, intensifying his pain. Next, the soldiers stretched out his arms and nailed his hands to the cross. As they raised the crossbar and placed it upon the upright post of the cross, the jolt must have caused unimaginable agony. Then his knees were flexed and his feet placed one on top of the other in a typical crucifixion. A nail was then driven through the feet, fixing them to the cross." At this point, every movement of Jesus' body would bring pain. The weight of the body pulling on the outstretched hands, pain shooting through the arms and shoulders, the weight of the body pushing down on the nailed feet, all intensified the agony. In addition to the intense pain, victims of crucifixion experienced great difficulty breathing. John 19.34 But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came out blood and water. The water in this verse has generated much discussion among both the medical and the lay communities. Just what was the source of this water? The blood is easy to explain. The soldier pierced Christ's side with a spear. Although scripture does not clearly say which side was penetrated, most believe this wound was in the chest because the Greek word pleura offers, refers, excuse me, to the thorax. Also, a killing thrust would most likely be delivered to the chest rather than the abdomen. So the heart, Pulmonary vessels or even the, the aorta could have been the source of the blood. But what about the water? Some have suggested a miracle, but this explanation seems inadequate. If the water was a miracle, what was the purpose? How was God glorified through this event? No, a miracle seems unlikely. This fluid may have come from around the lungs or around the heart, A spear piercing the side would pass through the uh, plurial plurial cavity, releasing any fluid that accumulated there during his ordeal. Also, the killing thrust would most likely have been aimed at the heart, whether from the left or the right side, and thus would have entered the pericardial sac in its course. Perhaps a pericardial effusion was a source of the water described. Some commentators have suggested that the water was actually abdominal cavity fluid this would require that you understand that the crucified victim had difficulty breathing normally when crucified the victim would breathe by having to push up on the nail-pierced feet to let air into the lungs at great difficulty and pain As a result, the victim was to work hard both to in and exhale. Breathing out would require Jesus to push up on his feet, which were nailed to the cross, causing extreme pain. And the blood loss continued. The pain took its toll on the body. Breathing came progressively more difficult. To hasten death of those condemned to the cross, typically soldiers would often break the legs of their victims, making it too painful to force themselves up to breathe. This Of course, was not the case with our Savior in answer to Old Testament prophecy. Not a bone was broken. He sat down, sat down because he had done so much. So far, we've been talking about verses 10 to 13. The last verse in our passage is verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 14 underscores that Jesus Christ's cross work is a once for all time work. It's not possible to reproduce it. It's not needful to do it over again. In fact, it is sin to attempt to redo it. Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 6, say this. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and of and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then, and then, have fallen away It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now follow with me. These verses are making it clear that those who renounce their former saving faith in Jesus Christ put themselves into the camp of people that was glad that Jesus Christ was crucified. And in this sense, those who would renounce their former saving faith in Christ, they sin by re-crucifying Jesus. And in so doing, sinning by re-crucifying Jesus, they are putting Jesus repeatedly to open shame. By the way, by teaching and believing that the priest can actually make the communion bread into Jesus' body and the communion wine into Jesus' blood, the Roman Catholic Church re-crucifies the Lord Jesus each and every Mass. Going back to chapter 10 and verse 14, "'For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified,' I love the word in verse 14 perfected. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This word for perfected is tel ao in Greek, teleio. It means brought to full moral maturity. Jesus one sacrifice for you if you believe in him and only him brings you to full moral maturity in the eyes of heaven, which are the only eyes that matter. You and I can't work for full moral maturity, but we can receive full moral maturity as a grace gift from a Savior who has sat down at the Father's right hand, having completely paid for all of your sins and mine. When God looks at you, believer, he sees you robed in Christ's moral maturity he sees you wearing the garb of Christ's righteousness. When holy God views you as a believer, he sees his son's sinless perfection as your uniform. He sees you as being made fully morally mature because of Christ. Now you say, that's great, but how does that work in everyday life? The fact that I've been given full moral maturity based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for me as believer. How does that fit life? How does that change my living? Two ways. Number one, if you're saved, know that it's God's will to sanctify you. The Lord never saves what he is not planning to set aside for his own possession and use. The one who God saves is the one who God also sanctifies. We loaded a 40-foot container in Pennsylvania, and every item we put in that container we intended and planned to use here. We didn't put anything in that container that we were going to throw away when we got here. God has not saved any one of you from sin, but that he plans and intends to set you apart for his own possession and his own use in holiness. So cooperate with the Holy Spirit and be progressively sanctified. Be in stages and increments made more to be like Christ. You're already fully morally mature in the eyes of God. Second thing that Jesus Christ has sat down at his Father's right hand because there's no further work necessary by him to win our forgiveness, to win our justification, to win our redemption. Because he's seated, what difference does that make to us every day? Number two, this, the cross was not about religion. Religion is like the work of the Old Testament animal sacrificing. The priest's work of the Old Testament before the cross was religion. Religion is tedious Religion is repetitious. Religion is rout. Religion is predictable. Religion is drudgery. Religion is insufficient. Religion is ineffective. And religion, if you're honest, you say religion is frustrating. We are not into religion. One of the greatest compliments someone can pay to me, as a pastor and as a Christian, is "You're not. You're not very religious." I go, "No, I'm not. I am not religious. On the contrary." I am in a relationship with my Savior by faith. A dynamic, growing, deepening relationship with my Savior. We would be fools, knowing this Savior by faith, we would be fools to regress to being religious. So brothers and sisters in Christ, know that the cross and the Savior upon the cross forged a relationship for you and me. A relationship wherein holy God restored believing and repentant rebels to know him and to love him and serve him. And in many ways, no please that the cross was entirely opposite, entirely opposite to the priests of the Old Testament offering the animals. How do I say that? How is the cross in many ways opposite to all the Old Testament animal sacrifices? Well, the cross was not predictable. The cross was not repeatable. The cross was radical. The cross was decisive. The cross was absolutely effective in atoning for sin. The cross's benefit is everlasting. The cross was administered by Gentile unbelievers, whereas the animal sacrifices were administered by Jewish believing priests. And the cross calls the person who looks upon that cross to belief in Christ whereas the animal sacrifices only happened because the sacrificers came with a belief in God. So we come together on Good Friday, and probably the majority of us this morning know Jesus as our Lord and Savior by faith, and that's wonderful. But Maybe there's someone here today, the day off work. You were led here. You maybe never been here before. Maybe you have been here before. But as I talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not quite sure what that means. I'm going to explain that in a little minute. But for now, let me just say that it is ours to set aside religion and performance-based acceptance with God in favor of grace, in favor of Christ-based acceptance with God. There was a missionary in Africa who took a visitor around an African village. And after telling the people that Jesus had died as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, the visitor heard a surprising story. One of the villagers was especially excited about what was told him about Jesus' sacrifice being for all the world's sin. He explained that he had spent his entire life trying to find the right sacrifice. He had offered up animals and all kinds of things that he thought might please God and now the search was over for jesus christ was explained to be the right sacrifice and the only sacrifice many people think that if they give up some habit or some practice they can earn heaven a precious person i ministered to this week said she was saved and when i probed what that meant to her she thought that when she was young and she gave her soul back to god that That's what made her saved. And lots of people think if they can make sacrifices to God of various nature that they can be saved. The truth is that God in Christ came to us as sinners. God made the first move. He came to us and he finished what had to be finished in payment for the world's sins, your sins, my sins. He's had those sins paid for completely such that Jesus could say paid in full with his last words before dying. Is he your Savior? Have you trusted him and only him? I'm not asking what your mother believes, your father believes, or what your friend believes. What do you believe? Have you ever transferred your trust from anything or anyone over to the finished work of Christ? Maybe just pray. Lord, we are bowed in your presence with our eyes closed so that we would not be distracted. Those of us who have trusted you alone for salvation, we are most blessed. We've reviewed what the cost it took for us to be redeemed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. But Lord, there could be some here today who when the question would be asked, if God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, They wouldn't know what to say, or they may say because of something that they did to try to be good. Lord, for these precious friends with us today, unsure of where they stand with you, but wanting to stand forgiven with you, may they, from where they sit, in the privacy of their own mind and heart. Make this their prayer to you, knowing that prayer is talking to God. This is not a magic prayer, but if this is the prayer you need to make to God and you want to make to God, I invite you to personalize it by quietly saying the words out loud right where you sit. If I tell God something you know you need to tell him, you quietly repeat in your in your seat. Lord, I have blown it, and I am a sinner. I thank you that Jesus loves me and has proven his love by dying for me. Say that to the Lord. I'm sorry for my sins. I want to trust Christ and only Christ to make me right with you, Lord, to give me new life, to give me adoption into your family. So I, in the best way I know how, I transfer my trust only to Jesus. I won't cling to religion. I won't cling to my self-efforts, but I will cling to Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. tell the Lord I know that Jesus is alive after death to be my Savior forever. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in respect to this holy moment, if you transferred your trust to Christ and have never done so before, as I helped you pray, would you slip your hand up, please? It may be that you have some questions about what it means to be a Christian and the claims of Christ. If you have those questions, we have a gift for you as a church. You can look up here now. We have the invitation CD that you could be given as a gift as you leave the service. I'm just going to ask those who are still trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian to ask for these. If you know Christ already, please don't... uh, Ask for one, so we have some for those who are still wondering about this, having questions about becoming a Christian. And if you transferred your trust to Christ for the first time, you're also welcome to get one of these as you exit uh, this morning. Thank you for your good attention to God's Word. The sermon is titled, He Sat Down. The text we have looked at together is Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those Who are sanctified. Lord, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. It'll take all of eternity to thank you for what you've done for us. But in the meanwhile, help us to live a thank you kind of life to you as your children. And we pray these things. And the Church of Jesus Christ said, Amen.